All right, you guys, are you ready to get into the Word of God this morning with me? Yes, that sounded very enthusiastic. Are you ready to get into the Word of God with me? Okay, woo! Yes, this is what we come here for, to hear the Word of God. All right. So we're going to be in Mark. Yes, and the children should be dismissed if first through sixth grade can dismiss at this time. Or they can stay, it's the parents' choice. We're going to be in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 3. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you can open to page 838. That'll bring you to Mark chapter 3. We're continuing our series in Mark. Let me encourage you to, we mentioned the cards, the connection cards. Our goal is for each of you to fill one out every time you come. That's what we're hoping. So in a spirit of cooperation, if you would do that, whether you've, You've done it already. The point is for you to fill one out each time you come and at least put your name. You can even put one per family just to let us know that you were here. The idea is as we grow, we, as part of shepherding, we want to make sure you're okay. And sometimes it's hard for us to remember who was here and who wasn't. And so it's our way of if we see connection card not showing up in the box, it signals us to call and find out if you guys are okay. It's one way we do it. If we were a small body of ten people it would be pretty easy. But as we grow, the connection card will be our mechanism to not to control you, or, to, or but to, to keep track of to see, make sure you're okay. Because sometimes people will disappear for two or three weeks and no one ever calls them and because no one even really knows they're even gone because the church grows in size. So will you do that for me this morning? Will you all fill out a connection card, at least one per family? And if you're new, the connection card is your ticket to a gift. So use it. Get it. We want to give it to you. Okay? All right. Are you guys all in Mark? I have a timer up here. I'm supposed to start it, and I never start it on time. You probably know that already. <laughs> Listen, we were watching that video, and there was a couple of statements that were made in the video. One was, the time is short. The time is short. That's a reference to the return of Christ. We believe that His return is imminent. That's just a word that means it can happen at any moment. Nothing has to take place before Christ returns for his people and to bring his wrath and judgment upon this world. Another man said that the culture is crazy. That's speaking to the morality of the culture. The culture is crazy and getting not better, but worse, it seems, by the day, by the moment. Especially if you live in California, it seems it's especially crazy here. I don't, I don't know, I'm just... Seems that way. He said that there was a need of revival. There was a need for revival. That means that the people would come alive again that are in Jesus Christ, that they would recommit themselves to His great cause upon this earth. There have been many great revivals throughout our history, throughout Christian history, but the church is always calling for another revival and we have not had one for some time. And disciple making is critical or crucial. These are all things that were addressed just in the comments, few seconds, the comments from those men, all pastors, by the way, all shepherds of God's people. Here are my concerns as a pastor. As a pastor, People come to Christianity, associate with the church for many different reasons. For many different reasons. And so the church can have an appearance of success. As you think about the mega churches, we're thousands. There's a church right around the corner from here where 
on any given Sunday morning, 7,000 people roll through their doors, through their multiple services they have. And that can give us a sense of, hey, we're winning. People are actually being captured by Christianity. But the problem is that is not necessarily true. There is a movement called, and it's been going on for a while, called the seeker-sensitive movement. And I think the intentions were good, but the results have been tragic. And the movement is this. If we can get unbelievers, people that normally would not attend church, would never set foot inside of a church, if we could get them into the building, and then they could hear the Word of God, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, they might be saved. Okay? Makes sense to me. But then the question is, how do we get them in the building? So we give unbelievers what they want. So you give them rock star performances, or you give them comedians, or you give them drama, or you give them art, or you give them whatever it takes where they feel comfortable. Well, let me tell you something. The church is for all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. It is not for unbelievers. It is not. The church is made up of believers, followers of Jesus Christ, those who have devoted themselves to Him. When we gather this morning, it is the church that is gathering, and we welcome unbelievers in. But most likely, they will not feel comfortable for long. And they will either respond to Jesus Christ in saving faith, or they will leave. I don't want them to leave. But if the only reason they're staying is because it seems or feels very much like the world to them, and they're never confronted about their sin or the rejection of the Savior, then they'll never ever really come to saving faith. They'll continue to come to the building, but never become part of the church. And so the numbers grow, and they grow, and they grow, and we think we have success. And we don't, beloved, in many cases. Beyond that, those who actually come and are converted and are following Jesus Christ, many of them are not trained in the doctrines. That's the truth. It's just a big word. The truth of this book. Instead, pastors have decided it would be better to Every Sunday, tell them how to fix their marriage, fix their children, fix their career, make themselves better so that their little world here on earth couldn't be better. Okay, listen, the Bible addresses marriage. It addresses raising children. It it addresses your employee-employer relationship. It addresses all of that stuff. But it is way bigger than all of that stuff. The picture is way bigger. And so, our focus as the church becomes here and now. Here and now, this earth. And instead of talking about the great doctrines of the future, what we call eschatology, the things of the future, the things that the Bible is looking forward to, the things that those who follow Christ were looking forward to, instead of talking about those things, we talk about the here and now. And our focus moves from what is coming to all of our little issues in life and all of our problems. And so we come to church looking to get a fix for the problem that we have right now. And we lose sight of what God has promised us to those that are His in the future. 
And it is that very truth that actually motivates us, transforms us, changes us to live differently in the here and now. Hmm. You know, with so many churches, if they were really accomplishing and doing, and if people were, as part of these churches, were really born again, on fire, sold out believers for Jesus Christ, if that was true, with all the churches we have and with all the numbers that go through the doors every Sunday, why is our society on a downward spiral morally? You've got to ask that question. And the answer is because lots of people are coming, but not necessarily for the right reason. And even the ones that are, are being taught little about their future hope. And therefore, they make no necessary change to live radically different in this world. All by way of introduction, let's look at Mark chapter 3, looking at verse 7. I'm going to read the text through 19. Starting in verse 7, page 838 in those pew Bibles, church Bibles. (laughs) Read with me. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, who betrayed him. There's parallel stories of this story in Mark. We have two stories, one of the crowds and one of the called or the disciples You can look, if you take notes, I always give this to you so you can look it up later. Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21 is a parallel story in in one of the other Gospels. And Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16, and also Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4 is another parallel account of the calling of the twelve. So let me give you a little background review and then we'll get into the sermon. Three weeks ago, we left off in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. If you remember, after Jesus had healed a withered hand, a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, a violation, if you remember, not of God's law, but of man-made rules and regulations, the religious leaders had added to God's Word. And that's... So then when we turn to Matthew or Mark chapter 3, verse 6, this is where the story picks up. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy destroy him. If you remember, the Pharisees were frustrated that Jesus had violated their laws and rules by healing this man's hand on the Sabbath. And they wanted to kill him. 
When we turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 15, which is a, don't turn there, but if you look there, it's a parallel account of this same story. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was aware of their plan to kill him. Okay? He was aware of it. He knew what they were up to. So he decided not to stick around. He wasn't going to wait for them to do that. The timing had not yet arrived. So he takes off with his disciples towards the beaches of Galilee. Towards the beaches of Galilee. However, his departure did not separate him from the crowds. They followed. And that brings us to Mark chapter 3, verse 7, which I just read. Through verse 19. In this section, Mark identifies 12 men who had a very special relationship with Jesus during his earthly ministry. In fact, Mark would refer to these disciples of Christ collectively as the twelve. Nine more times in Mark. The twelve. That's how they will become, that's how they, they will come to be known from here on out. This section is important to us and to the readers of Mark because it prepares you for Mark chapter 6 where he will send the twelve out to mimic Jesus as they go from town to town preaching repentance. And it also looks forward to Mark chapter 16 after Christ's death and resurrection where he will call upon the twelve to proclaim the gospel, the good news of his death and resurrection to sinners. Quoting one writer, Mark assigns a central place to the twelve as those in whom discipleship was concentrated. While Mark may have known of others who were also disciples of Jesus, this knowledge has left almost no imprint on his record. What it means is you don't see him focusing on any of the other disciples or followers of Christ. It is specifically on the twelve. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples of Jesus are apparently the twelve. The twelve. They're significant. When I was reading this text in preparation for today, what stood out to me was this phrase in the text that we just read. They came to him. It's actually the title of the sermon. It's used twice. You can look back at the text. It's once a reference to the crowds in verse 8. It says the crowds came to him. It's also used in regard to the twelve. They came to him. So this morning what I want to do is simply look at the differences between these two groups that came to Jesus. That will be our focus today. So if you like to take notes, you can open your bulletin. Inside is an outline. We just have two points. Two points. Their magnitude and their motive. Those are the contrasts we will look at between these two groups, the crowd and the twelve. So beginning with their magnitude. Their magnitude is just another way of saying their size. But we like to make everything start with the same letter, so we find special words that no one uses. Their magnitude, their size. First, the crowd. The crowd is big. Big. Look back at verse 7. Look back at verse 7. And it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the great crowd, not just a crowd, but a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Okay, can I get a, a map real quick? So I just want to show you, so you, I know it may not be a great map, but see this little thing right here? 
this little body of water. That's the Sea of Galilee. This is Palestine during Jesus' day, Israel, but Palestine, the whole area. Here's the Sea of Galilee where Jesus is doing most of his ministry right now as we're talking about it in Mark. This is the Jordan River, flows down into the Dead Sea. Okay, so he says that crowds came from Galilee and Judea. Galilee is this area right here, so that makes sense. That's very close to the area where Jesus is ministering. Judea is this bigger area right here. Here is Jerusalem, where they also came from. Just so you know, Bethlehem, the birthplace of our Lord and Savior, since we're close to Christmas. And then it says beyond the Jordan. Some translations say Transjordan. It means on the other side of the Jordan River, most likely from Perea, right here. So crowds are coming from here, from here, and then it also says from Idiomia. That's all the way down south of Jerusalem. And then from Tyre and Sidon, you can't read them, but they're right here. They're coastal cities northwest of Galilee. Just so you can get some geography picture in your mind. So Jerusalem is 80 miles away from from Galilee, from Capernaum where Jesus is. Idiomia is another 40 miles from Jerusalem. So 120 miles these people are traveling. Um, Tyre and Sidon, 50 miles from the north, from where Jesus are. They were coming in droves. You can kill it now. They were coming in droves and were willing okay, to make the difficult and potentially very dangerous trip to get to Jesus because there were Roman roads that existed because Rome was ruling and so that helped. They built roads so people could move and com- commerce could happen and they could move their military from one town to the next. But there were also wild animals and thieves along those roads. So to make that hike with your family or even for yourself was no small venture. It was not like us where we get in a car, we drive 50 miles, we don't even think twice of it. 120 miles, even that is not a big deal. Some of you do that for work every day. But for them, it would have been a very big deal that Mark was telling them from how far they came. How many in the crowd, we do not know exactly. He does not record it. He tells us it's a great crowd or a multitude. A multitude will be another word for great. In other words, it's hard to even number them. In fact, we know it's a great crowd because Jesus is concerned for his safety. Okay, if, if ten of you came after me, uh, depending on which ten, but if ten of you came after, I probably would feel you know, relatively safe. But several thousand of you coming and wanting my attention might make me a little nervous. And it did also Jesus. He commissioned his disciples to prepare a boat like a getaway car. Exactly. They put the boat, and remember, he's on the beaches of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Prepare a boat so that if I need to, I can get into the boat and away from the crowds and escape them in case they cause me harm. Not that they would purposely, being there, they're not there to harm Jesus, but just the reality of them pressing in on him. Well, what was it that inspired so many people to come from such a long distance to see Jesus, to be with him? Well, we're going to look at that in a moment. But first, let's look at the next group that Mark says came to Jesus. And what I want you to see is the stark contrast. We go from possibly thousands, we don't know exactly, but many, many people coming from many different areas 
And the text says they came to him. And then Mark introduces us to 12 that come to him. Small to large. Look at verse 13 of Mark chapter 3. The 12. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12. Now here's the question. Why 12? Have you ever thought about that? Many of you are aware that there were 12 disciples or apostles as we refer to them now, right? Many of you have heard that and maybe if you've been in church, you recite their names so you can remember them. Why 12? Why not 13? Well, Jeremy, 13, obviously, that's bad luck. Jesus would never assign 13. Okay, how about 11? How about 11? Or 100 for that matter. Why not 100? How did we go from great crowds who are clamoring after Jesus to 12? I mean, if there were so many coming to Him, why choose only 12? Why not 24 or 48? Couldn't Jesus accomplish a lot more for ministry if He had bigger people following Him, bigger crowds, more disciples? Was it just that 12 was the largest number Jesus could handle? He's like, 12 and no more. I, that's all I can do. Or was it that He only had 12 extra seats in the van? No, I, I don't believe so. You need to know that Jesus, or anything that Jesus did, was not unplanned. It was not unplanned. It was not random or accidental. He didn't just get to 12 and say, that's enough. I, okay, I'm tired now. There's, there's no more. He was not making it up as he went. And this is very important to you. And I want you to forever remember when you leave here today what I'm going to tell you about the 12. I hope you will remember it every time you think about the 12. Turn back just to the left to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Just to the left. We went through this a while ago as we were moving through the Gospel of Mark. This is the summary here of Jesus' ministry. And here's what it says. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee... That's where he is now on the Sea of Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Okay. Jesus came proclaiming the good news, the good news being the kingdom of God. He was not proclaiming his death and resurrection. It didn't happen yet. He was alive. So what is the good news or the gospel that he was proclaiming? It is the kingdom of God. It is the establishment of the kingdom on earth where Christ would rule and reign from his throne and righteousness and peace will overflow the land. That's the kingdom. It would be a time of unprecedented health and prosperity in the land. Unprecedented health and prosperity. It was promised to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament Scriptures. And we can go many, many places, but we won't do that this morning. I just want you to get that. The Gospel that Jesus was proclaiming, the good news, was the Kingdom of God. Was the Kingdom of God. It was their future hope 
Israel's future hope. It was what they were waiting for and longing for. It was to be restored in the land that God had promised them, where the one coming from the line of David, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, would sit on His throne and rule and reign. Now, the nation of Israel was made up of, you you may know this, twelve tribes. Those twelve tribes are represented by the twelve sons of Jacob. Jacob was one of the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was named Israel by God. His twelve sons would make up the twelve tribes of Israel or the nation of Israel. Oh, what a coincidence. No, it's not a coincidence. Jesus' election of these 12 men was not insignificant, beloved. Jesus then makes a connection between the 12 and their future ministry in the kingdom. I want to show that to you. It's Matthew chapter 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll read it to you. Matthew chapter 19 This context here in verses 27 and 28, Jesus is here talking to a man, a rich young man. And the rich young man, bottom line, doesn't want to part with his stuff in order to follow Jesus. Even though Jesus says, I know your heart, your heart is for your stuff, your heart needs to be for me, he's unwilling, he walks away. That's the context. Verse 27, Peter, one of the twelve, Peter, one of the twelve, said in reply to what he just saw, Jesus, see, we have left everything and followed you. So we see that the rich young man was unwilling to give it up, but we have. We have. So what then will we have? That's right. That makes sense. It's a human being. He's saying, we gave up everything, Jesus. What's in it for us in the end? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, in the new world, when the Son of Man, that's a reference to Jesus Christ, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you who have followed Me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Hmm. That's interesting. Also, you can look at Luke 22, 28-30 for another reference to the twelve, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The establishment of the twelve under the leadership of Jesus is another indication or sign that the true ruler of the nation of Israel had arrived on the scene. That's what they should have known. The fact that he assigned twelve and those twelve ultimately would sit on thrones who would rule over the twelve tribes of Israel that made up the nation of Israel and their leader, their master was Jesus. He was the ruler, the declared ruler of the entire nation and a fulfillment of the words in the Old Testament from all the prophets. The reality of the kingdom was so important to these disciples. The promise that Jesus made that these twelve would rule and reign in thrones, real thrones, in the kingdom of God over the twelve tribes of Israel was so important to them that even after Jesus' death and resurrection, they were still focused on it. 
They were still focused on it. Turn to Acts chapter 1. It's going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts. A little bit to your right. Acts chapter 1, page 909 if you're using one of the church Bibles. Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 3. We'll just read a couple of texts from here. It says, He, that is Jesus. This is after Jesus' death, resurrection. He presented Himself alive to them. The them are the apostles of verse 2. The twelve. He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the... What does it say? Kingdom of God. Here it is again. He's talking to them for 40 days about the Kingdom of God. What he, had, what he said to them, we do not know. It's not recorded. But for 40 days after His resurrection, He spends time with the Twelve explaining to them about this coming Kingdom. Now look at chapter 1, verse 6, just a few verses down. It says, So when they that is the twelve, had come together, they asked him, actually the eleven at this point, we'll get to that in a second, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, this is what they're thinking about. You spent 40 days talking to us about it. You promised us that we would rule and reign in thrones over the twelve tribes in your kingdom that where you would be king. Is now the time? Because we thought it was coming when you were here but you died, you resurrected, is now the time. Now Jesus could have said, you guys are really messed up in your thinking. You must not have understood everything I told you for the last 40 days. There's no real kingdom coming to earth. He could have said that. This would be a perfect time to correct their errant thinking. Instead, what does He say? Verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. In other words, yes, it's coming. Yes, I'm going to establish it. Yes, you're going to rule and reign in it. But you don't get to know when. That's all. That's what he's saying. I want to show you something else. Replacing Judas. He was one of the twelve. Remember, we read it from the text. He betrayed Jesus. Most of you know, familiar a little bit with the disciples. Judas was the one that sold Jesus out for a few pieces of silver. He had committed suicide at this point, so he was no longer alive. So now we have 11. Do you know what the first task after Jesus ascended? So here we're in Acts chapter 1. He's talked to the disciples for 40 days. This is after his resurrection. He tells them a lot about the kingdom. They say, when is it coming? I'm not going to tell you. He says, go to this place because power is coming from on high, the Holy Spirit. He ascends back to his Father. After that whole event, the first thing, as they're gathered together, the first thing they do is they decide they have to replace Jesus. It's in, not Jesus, Judas. It's in Acts 1, 15 through 26. They decide in that text, we need to find another one to fill the 12. We have 11. We need to make sure that we have 12 because Judas betrayed Jesus and now is gone. Why? Why would they do that? I mean, are you telling me that they have to have 12 in order to tell people about Jesus to be his witnesses? No, that's not why. The reason they had to replace 
Judas is because there was a vacancy on one of the thrones that were going to be ruled over in the nation of Israel, the restored kingdom over the 12 tribes. Jesus made a promise. You 12, those who follow after me, will rule over 12 thrones. Those 12 thrones will be over the 12 tribes of Israel. Guess what? Judas did not continue to follow after him. He betrayed him. So the 11 picked someone, according to the will of God, if you read the entire text, to replace him so that there would be 12. Because they were anticipating what? The kingdom. That's what they were anticipating. It was very real to them because Jesus had promised it to them. He had spent time explaining that to them, that a kingdom was coming to the earth where Jesus would rule and reign. Now the mistake some Christians have made is that they have identified the church in some sense as the kingdom of God. They've spiritualized this as if we are the kingdom of God here on earth. But that is not how the Bible explains it. And that is not how the disciples understood it. Why would they need to add a twelfth? Why would they do that unless they thought of an actual, literal kingdom coming to earth where Jesus would be king over actual subjects, over actual land, over nations, and where people would really rule and reign? Because of the misunderstanding that somehow the church has become the kingdom of God and thinking now that they have the divine right to rule, they then take their time and their resources to try to fully establish that kingdom on earth now. On earth now. As a result, the church... When I say the church, I mean those who meet together and proclaim Christianity in many buildings throughout our land. The church has lost its focus on its pilgrim status. Meaning that it's just traveling through. That this home is not its home. That this kingdom is not the kingdom they're supposed to fix. That a kingdom is coming and the ruler, the master, the king will come and crush all other kingdoms and establish his own. They lose sight of that. And they spend all of their time and their energy trying to fix something that cannot be fixed. So they pour themselves into politics or into social programs or into the many other things to try to make this world a utopia or a better place or even, dare I say, a heaven on earth. That is not for us to do. It is for Him to do. Jesus, is now the time you are going to establish your kingdom. Restore your kingdom to Israel. You! Well, I'm not going to tell you, but I am coming to do it. Meanwhile, you be busy preparing people for that kingdom. See the difference in focus? And beloved, only those who call Him Lord now, while on earth, before they die, will be able to enter into that said kingdom. That's the issue. That very kingdom that the disciples were looking for. See, I as a pastor, 
And I, as someone who uh, has been given responsibility to shepherd a flock, sheep, I'm letting you know this is, this is my desire, this is, my, this is what drives me, and I'm hoping that you will catch that too. It is not to fix this society. That is not my goal. There is a reality that as men and women come into contact with the living God and He changes them, that that has a positive effect on society. Because from inwardly flows righteousness now. I don't have to beat them over the head or threaten them with jail time or high fines or tickets in order for them to do the right thing. They desire to do the right thing because they follow the righteous one. And in the end, that will have a positive impact on Fontana and Rancho Cucamonga and Rialto and California and the great United States of America and the entire world. But my goal is not to fix all the ills of society Read your New Testament. They did not pour themselves in to trying to fix their broken Roman government. They did not do that. That does not mean we cannot vote or have a positive impact or speak about the issues. That's not what I'm saying. But as the church, our focus, our main purpose is to prepare people for the coming kingdom. And you don't get in unless you have a relationship with the king. Do you see what I'm saying? Write this down. Revelation 19, verse 11 through chapter 20, verse 6. If you want to read for yourself the coming of the king to establish his kingdom and the judgment that he brings in preparation for that kingdom. When he comes again, beloved, he comes as ruler, as king, and with him he brings wrath. Wrath for all those who have rejected him on this earth. The first time he came as savior, the second time he comes as judge. As judge. So just to drive it home a little bit more, you need to think about the reality of what you're doing as a believer, as a follower if you claim to be that of Jesus Christ. How far are you driving your stakes in a world that is broken and fallen? Why would you do that? The disciples did not do that. In fact, right away we're told that they were even willing to sell their property. They were not forced, but they were willing, seeing their brother or sister in need, to sell their property, their land, and that was huge and significant in that day to have that piece of land. They would sell it and use the proceeds to help. Do you know why they were able to do that so willingly, so freely? Because in their mind and in their heart, they knew beyond a shadow of a doubt the kingdom was coming and it would all be restored to them and more. But you and I, we lose sight of the kingdom. People don't even talk about it anymore. The Bible talks a lot about it. Jesus spoke a lot about it. The disciples were narrowed, focused in on it. They were proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. We lose sight of it and we focus in on here and now. All right, number two. The other contrast, their motive. Wow, I gotta hurry up. Senior, I just can't talk fast enough, no matter what I do. Their motive. 
Let's look at their motive, the contrast of their motive for coming him. First, the magnitude, stark contrast, large crowds and the twelve. Remember the twelve and the significance of them. The crowd, verse, chapter 3, verse 8, back in Mark, second part of it. It says, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, when they heard all that he was doing, they came to him. So what had Jesus been doing that would cause so many to come to him from so far away and risk life and limb in order to just have a, a moment with Jesus? What was he doing? You that have been with us for a while. He was healing, yes. He had a healing ministry. He was healing on a level that had never, ever been witnessed in history. The blind saw, the lame walked, disease was cured in a moment. Not in months or in years or after lots of therapy. In a moment. And they were restored completely and wholly physically. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. The crowd's focus was not so much on what he was saying, what he was teaching. You see that in chapter 3, verse 8. They heard what he was doing. Not so much what he was saying. They were coming because He was the miracle healer. And in their coming, they were determined at all costs to get relief from their physical problems. And you see that as we, as we were reading through the text in verse 10. It was a mob scene. It was chaotic. You could understand that, can't you? You've been ill for some time. We have, listen, they didn't have Kaiser and Blue Cross and all that stuff back then. We have some fixes to our problems we have great pain medication and, and the such. They didn't have any of that for the most part. They had medical procedures, but not like we do today. So they suffered needlessly in some cases with these ills. You can understand their desire to get to Jesus at all costs if there's just a possibility that they could be healed from what has taken them down for so long. The serious was situation and it wow. The situation was serious. Dyslexia. The situation was serious and it was desperate. It was desperate. So desperate, as we said earlier, that Jesus made preparations to leave the crowd if necessary to escape. Because he faced the real possibility that they might crush him, the text says. Crowd in on him, suffocate him. And Jesus being the compassionate Savior. God that He is, He healed them. He healed all of them, beloved. But instead of them seeing it as a unique sign that points to the identity, His identity as the Christ, the Anointed One, the coming King who brings with Him the Kingdom, all they do every time they leave and go back is tell others about the amazing things He has done. Not so much the amazing things he is saying or even the amazing person that he is. That's their focus. It's here and now. It's on the here and now. This reminds me of another time in Jesus' ministry. Maybe you know about this. He feeds 5,000. By the way, that story is more magnificent than that because in the Scripture they normally just record the heads of the household. So when we, when we talk about Jesus feeding 5,000, it's just the men. He most likely fed 20,000 if you just take the normal size family. just makes it more miraculous. It says that after he did that, he traveled in John, in the book of John, it says he traveled to the other side of the sea. And the next day, the crowds were looking for him, the crowds that were fed. And they realize he's not there, so they figure out where he went and they find him. And in John 6, just listen, in John 6, 
25. Listen to what the Word of God says. When they found him, the crowds that were fed, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So in other words, signs point to something, right? They tell us, they give us direction, they tell us something, there's meaning to a sign. He's saying, you didn't see that and recognize me as who I am, because that's what that miracle was all about. That I can take a few loaves and sardines and feed 20,000 people. Who can do that except God? Who can create from nothing except God? You didn't recognize me as I as who I really am. Instead, you're coming because your belly is hungry again and you want me to feed you. See? One writer says, The crowd is a paradox. Its needs command Jesus' attention and Jesus is fully attentive to the misery present in its numbers. But its clamor is not a response of faith. They were coming to Him for all the wrong reasons. Jesus and His mercy still minister to them. But they missed their real and great and deepest need. And that's just like the church today, beloved. How about the twelve? What was their motive in coming to Jesus? That's the contrast. Two phrases. They came to Him. We see why the crowds came. They came because they heard what He was doing. And they had needs, real physical needs. Why did the twelve come to him? The answer is simple. Jesus freely chose them to be his and authoritatively, irresistibly called them to himself. That's the answer. That is why they came. No other explanation is needed or even given. This was not a call for volunteers. Jesus did not say, how many would like to be one of my twelve? <laughs> they probably wouldn't even understand what he was talking about. How many would like to sign up on the Jesus train? No. This is election by Jesus. He elected whom he desired to be one of his twelve. Look at the text, verse 13. Verse chapter 3, verse 13, He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired. And how did it turn out? And they went a-running. And they came to Him. And He appointed twelve, whom He also named apostles. Why? So that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach. Unlike the crowds, beloved, who were not responding to Jesus' call. They were not. We just looked at that. They were not responding to His sovereign call, but were coming only to fulfill their needs. These men were summoned by the Master Himself to model Him in a life of sacrifice and service in order to accomplish His goals, Jesus' goals, not their own. They would have a relationship with Him. He called them to Himself that they would be with Him. They would have a relationship with Him and out of that relationship would flow a new agenda for their lives. 
That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Discipleship, as one writer said, is a relationship before it is a task. It is a who before it is a what. The crowds, beloved, were not looking for a personal relationship with Jesus. They were only looking for a quick fix to their physical problems. Just like many in the church today. Pillar says, The society into which he calls them is determined not by their preferences, but by his summons. Speaking of the twelve. Its members have nothing in common except his sovereign call, apart from which the community cannot exist. What brought them to him, beloved, was not their common need for healing or food, is the point. But it was solely the sovereign call of the Son of God. That's why they came to him. That's why they came to him. In the end, when we get to the end of the story of Mark, in the end, the crowds desert him. They leave him. And they even encourage his crucifixion. The twelve, eleven, Judas betrayed him. The twelve suffered And most were murdered for him. Big contrast. Big contrast. So here's a couple of questions and then I'll leave you with this. Just for you to think about. For you to consider. Are you looking for the kingdom of God? Are you looking for that? Are you thinking about that? Are you living in light of that reality as the twelve did? Or are you preoccupied with the cares and the concerns of this present world like the crowd? Think about it. It's kind of like this. I I think of it this way. We are a Friday generation. We are always living for Friday. Right? And for a lot of us, it's because on Friday there's a party to go to or there's some cool event on Saturday. Think about it. When you know you have an event coming up, an event that you want to attend, it even helps you get through the week or maybe the month because you're like, oh, today was rough, but Friday's coming. Or today was rough, but I'm having that party. I know, I know I'm going to have a good time at that party. Today was rotten. Tomorrow will be rotten. But I know a few weeks from now, I'm going to have a good time at that party. You know what I'm saying, Amira? The kingdom of God is one party you don't want to miss. And it is what drove the disciples to continue to live in the face of not just a hard day, beloved, But in the face of persecution and death, it's what caused them to continue on, to not shut their mouths, even when they were threatened with jail or imprisonment or suffering or beating or even execution. Yeah, today's a hard day, they said, but a good day is coming because our king promised that he's coming back to establish his kingdom and we will rule and reign in it. And in that kingdom, righteousness and peace will overflow the land, unlike the one we live in today. You see what I'm saying? It drove them, but they were, it was always on their mind. For you and I in the church, we don't even talk about this stuff. Instead, we talk about all the stuff about today. 
All the problems of today. I get it. We have lots of problems. I, I hate to tell you this. You know, I was just talking to somebody. Somebody just got a house. Oh, Ryan. He just Ryan Denae just moved into their first home. So, God bless him. That's great. And he said, he said, you know, the list has started of all the stuff now they got to deal with. And I said, I just want you to know, don't be in a hurry to try to finish the list because you never, ever, ever, never will. And that is like, you know what I'm saying, those of you who own homes? And that is like problems. You're in such a hurry to get out of a problem? There's one waiting right behind it. Why are you in such a hurry? Live for the world to come. Live for the kingdom of God. If you will do that, you will live radically different in this present world. It will revolutionize you. It would revolutionize our great city, our state, our country. It would turn this world upside down. And that is exactly what the twelve did. They turned the world upside down. Living for that one? No. And finally, let me just ask this question. Why are you here today? People come to church for all kinds of reasons. Right? Sometimes they come because they feel guilty. Because they haven't been to church for a while. So they come once every three weeks or four weeks. Because the guilt, you know, it it accumulates. And it's finally enough guilt. And they go, I want to get rid of the guilt. So they come. Some come because they just want to feel better about themselves. They think by coming to church somehow maybe it does. It helps them feel better about themselves. I don't I don't know. Some come for a spiritual high. Right? So they're looking for that that pump. Alright. Good to go. Some come to network for business. I've seen that. You know, they've just, you know, entered into Amway or some other network marketing company and they go, Where's a lot of gullible people that I can wrap into my business? I'm kidding, but actually the church can be very gullible. Some come to look for a mate, right? I've, we've seen this. So a single man will come, he'll look around. No good-looking single women, I'm going to the next place, right? So they'll never be a part of a small church because they, they'd have to wait a long time for all the kids to grow up and the age difference wouldn't work. So they go to a bigger place where there's lots of singles, you know? This is the place, this is where it's happening. You want to hook up, I meant that in the best positive way. If you want to meet a mate... I shouldn't use that term. If you want to meet a mate, you know, this is where to go. Some come to make friends. And because of that, beloved, that is why a lot of people can take or leave the church, you know, on any given Sunday. They're there for all kinds of reasons, but not really there for the main reason. So they, they can take it or leave it. That's why church attendance is so sporadic. Some people have real issues. They have health issues. They have work conflicts. I get that. But the reality is, if you look at church attendance records, just consider your own. I'm not picking any of you out. Consider your own. How often do you come? And if it's here and there and you can miss a couple weeks and everything, just ask yourself. No guilt trip at all. I'm just asking you to ask yourself, why are you even coming? Why are you coming? That will reveal a lot to you. It will reveal a lot to you. But if you've been called by the King Himself into a relationship with Him, to be with Him, that you might fulfill His purposes and His agenda, to live in this life, to prepare people for the One to come, for the Kingdom, then why would you ever miss a Sunday unless you, unless hurricanes kept you back? Or work at, you wouldn't because as we gather together, we gather together as the body of Jesus Christ to encourage one another, exhort one another, 
to remind each other after a hard week that we are not living for this world. Why would you ever miss that? And beyond that, God has gifted you that you would benefit the body of Christ, that you would minister to them, pray for them, talk to them, walk alongside them, encourage them. Why would you miss that if you've been called by the living God into a relationship with Him? Why would you miss it? You need to ask yourself those questions. That's all. Let's pray.